Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings. We are reading Marguerite Young, Inviting the Muses. And we are on the review section. Oh, it is nice outside. We are having supposedly a scorcher of a day. But it's not humid, so it's really comfortable. It's a little breezy and we might get a storm. And we might break the record uh, for the warmest day on record this early in the year. So, so, the review section is the last part of inviting the muses, and they're pretty short. I wonder if I should do a couple. Yeah, they are short. Okay, so I'm thinking I'm I'm thinking I'm going to do the first three. Because, um, so back at that time, and this is just gleaned from the correspondence that I was able to read through the, I'm not going to say it right, the, uh, the library at Yale that has all of Marguerite Young's papers. They've uploaded some of the scanned work uh, on the internet so that you could look at it and read it. And so it's the hand, well, it's the old... I think there was a handwriting. I don't remember there's being a hand. I think there was a handwritten one. And the rest of them were typed. So it's correspondence. And in one of those um, that I was able to read, um, Margaret Young was uh, was looking for reviews or an exchange of reviews. Um, and she's she um, made the remark that you know, I'm making this review so that it will sell. So reviews back then, and I guess that's why they're included here, and, and, and it was a different time. Reviews back then, um, especially, well, they still do it. They still do it. Whenever you pick up a book, I found, I looked at that the other day. There's a book I really liked, and I was looking, I was like, oh, yeah, I would be interested in more like this. And so they had authors that were that wrote like that, and sure enough, there was another one there that I had read, and I was like, oh. So, um it's a way of tying like a genre together or, and it's a way, it's a publicity. It's, it's marketing. It's publicity. So, you know, you have these authors and that they sell really well, then you have them work together and they it's cross promote, cross promotion is what they do. Well, this was true back in Margaret Young's time as well. It's a time honored way of marketing other authors. Um, considered among your, your, I'm going to say class or, uh, popularity at least. So these reviews back then were <clears throat> were really important. They were taken uh, pretty seriously. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so the first one is Domestic Fables. Rosalie Dunlap Hickler, Lower Than the Angels. A first book which includes so many distinct if not distinguished poems commands respect. The most adverse criticism which can be made of it is one which few first volumes escape that it shows the direct influence of other writers. Some of the poems are reminiscent of Eleanor Wiley, Wise and Mary, for example, with the familiar ring of five burly years have shouldered us apart, and less obviously of Edna Millay. <clears throat> Lower than the angels, however, is the work of an independent personality, sensitive and spirited in her own right. If even the title seems a bit like angels and earthly creatures, one must remember that no one possesses a monopoly on celestial figures. 
Mrs. Hickler achieves the rash adventure of infecting a combination of the fabulous with the domestic. Elves, devils, angels, Puck, the delectable mountain, with the unassuming rainwashed stone. Oops. The wet earth smell. A girl's walk lighter than yellow leaves. A woman sitting by an old gray wall, thinking of orchards or of nothing. A whimsical juxtaposition of the striped chipmunks and the tired kings. The author has a kind of... Irish fairy story imagination. Her touch is light and suggestive. Certain of the poems, particularly those concerning children, rightly prefer to deal in terms of fancy rather than of the imagination. But such poems as Castle Tranquility, Girl Under a Rosebush, Lost for Good, combine the fanciful world with the real in such a way that reality is heightened rather than lost. Night on a Mountain, Winter Wood, Together, Thunderstorm, these roads show the versatility of Mrs. Hickler's talent. The poems are technically competent and occasionally achieve a music which seems to arise from the thought itself, using words as its instrument. It is not within the province of the reviewer to make prophecies, either of doom or felicity, but it does seem that with such a promising beginning, Mrs. Hickler may come to a better comprehension of her own personality as an artist. It is hard now to say what that personality will be like. And that was published in Poetry in 1935. And the next one is Leaning Backward, Mary Britton Miller, Intrepid Bird. This book may be characterized as a verse of a medieval temperament with, which apprehends the modern world. The poems convey a sense of struggle and, suge- and suggest the thing too tragic to sustain the ancient or general agony which make of their author a realist within dim cathedral closes among choirs of martyrs and the congregation of apostolic dead. The theme has dramatic possibilities which are scarcely realized. The poems lack conviction because of technical deficiencies resulting in disjointed and disintegrating style. The three pride poems suffer attenuation. Naked newborn child seems too discursive. One questions the expenditure of four sonnets in the sequence sparrows, devoted to a contrast between sparrows and doves with the rhetorical question, hear ye the sparrows pigeons, and such other devices. Symbolism is interesting, but it is heavy cargo for birds to carry through 56 lines. Pastures green and leper's eyes are archaisms more frequent among the titles than the simple snowstorm or ascent. One wishes, too, that the author had not employed such popular terms as Zion, Philistine, or Ishmael that cover a multitude of liter- literary sins. Mrs. Miller's poems are more forceful when she discards the secondary method and manner of the address, plea, prayer, or oration, and when she is not straining after unusual effects, when she abandons pretentious description for verbal force. At these times, the poems have fewer blind spots both in technique and sensitivity. Walk in the fog with its gnomic image of one who has become a streaming tree, a floating bush, a shadow passing on the dune, a cloud that steps across the moon. is particularly effective. Snowstorm is lively, with the winds which have loosed the stars and turned the cosmos out of doors. Of the longer poems, the mystical Pentecost is most successful. It is frenzied with quartz and crystal roses, sulpiture flo- flowers, amber irises, exterior churches. It is compelling with apprehended de- deity. Parturition? Partru- would be better without such exhausted symbols as the wall of weeping. Too much of the poem is spent in getting to the heart of the matter. The dedication, one of the best moments in the book, reads, Intrepid bird in the great tree, oh, what a formidable feat, to cling to the precarious branch amid the avalanche of leaves and sing a song so sweet. One does not object to the bird or the branch. One only wishes the branch had been a little higher, a little more precarious. 
Mrs. Miller has something to say, but she owes to herself the discipline of weeding out the shadows of a loveliness incredible. The halting word, the joy, the ecstasy, the tis trues and it hath's, as a rather stereotyped diction. She writes in the dark strain of, of mysticism, which has its anger, and if it is not the thought which we criticize so much as its expression, yet poetry exists in language, and that single phrase fresh minted from the heart, which she describes as the need of the poet among flowers. First published in Poetry, 1935. Well, that's the first time I've ever heard her be critical. Of something that someone's published. Which is interesting. And I'm going to read uh, one more. Because after this, the reviews get a little bit longer. Uncertain Measures. Florence Ripley Maston, Cobwebs of Cable. Whether in the contraction of space to fairy size, where flowers are confused with frost, or in its expansion to supermundane heights where earth recedes a fantasy of sleep, Miss Maston's poems achieve in their total effect the drama of a spiritual landscape seen from changing perspectives. Without reliance on verbal affectations, they convey the tenuous suggestion of pilgrim's progress among the plumes of frost flowers, or of archaic angelic men where in the flying sonnets' airship plunges downward, lost in the canyons of celestial rain. <clears throat> Excuse me. Miss Maston reaffirms lasting values and extends her definition of human nature beyond the prescriptions of the Marxian legislators to include the January wood where a tufted titmouse and a blue jay talk, or the city tree green twilight for the anguish of his eye. Unfortunately for the pioneer of the old world, her lyrics are more vital from the level of biography, let us say, than from that of art for its own sake. One hopes for future lyric flights unburdened by the pro prolixity of such prosaic statements as one cannot write her into 14 lines or 1400. And for sure control of the poem is an indivisible organic unit, every word of which must seem inevitable in its relation to the whole. Although Miss Maston handles the sonnet with ease and achieves a variety within this medium, it becomes at times too spacious a form for what seems to be a less conventional lyricism. In her best poem, she writes with clarity and freshness, with a vivid and sensitive detail, betraying none of the faults of the amateur. The five flying sonnets, Mother, the Tree Above, Umbra, and others, strike one as being authentic and sustained. There are indeed a few without their felicities of praise. Abel Mood, which follows, shares with others of these poems the charm of Elizabethan song. When azure lies behind the rain, and April twists the weather vane, into the south who shall foretell his own heart's weather? Though heaven ring her sweetest bell, and young larks lie in the heather, who shall foretell? So passing sweet the spring last year, so delicate that now I fear, I would return to live with snow a little longer. Before the blackthorn hedges show their buds, I shall be stronger to live with snow. That's a mixed review, and that was published in Poetry in 1936. And I'll stop there and continue with the reviews later on, um, maybe tomorrow. And then, uh, then after that, I know I won't be back until next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.